By now, you've all heard of Italian Wine Unplugged 2.0, the latest book published by Mama Jumbo Shrimp. It's more than just another wine book. The fully updated second edition was inspired by students of the Vinitali International Academy and painstakingly reviewed and revised by an expert panel of certified Italian wine ambassadors from across the globe. The book also includes an edition by Professore Attilio Scienza, Italy's leading vine geneticist. The benchmark producer's feature is a particularly important aspect of this revised edition. The selection makes it easier for our readers to get their hands on a bottle of wine that truly represents a particular grape or region. To pick up a copy, just head to Amazon.com or visit us at MamaJumboShrimp.com. Welcome to Wine, Food and Travel with me, Mark Millen, on Italian Wine Podcast. Listen in as we journey to some of Italy's most beautiful places in the company of those who know them best, the families who grow grapes and make fabulous wines. Through their stories, we will learn not just about their wines, but also about their ways of life, the local and regional foods and specialities that pair naturally with their wines, and the most beautiful places to visit. We have a wonderful journey of discovery ahead of us, and I hope you will join me. Welcome to Wine, Food and Travel with me, Mark Millen, on Italian Wine Podcast. Today it's my great pleasure to actually travel to the heart of Irpinia, to Acipalda, to be with Dr. Piero Mastroberardino at one of Italy's most iconic wine estates. We're continuing a conversation we started a couple of weeks ago, uh, a fascinating story of the Mastro Berardino family, and I'm delighted that we can actually have a part two interview focusing on uh, topics we didn't really get a chance to, to cover last week. So thank you very much for, for being my guest today, Piero. How are you? Thank you very much. I appreciate it. It's my great pleasure, Mark, uh, and uh, I really hope to have a uh, the chance to show a little more about uh, what we call Mastro Berardino experience, so the different aspects of uh, our contribution to the world of wine. Yes, and it is a, it is a very significant contribution. We've just spent um, a good hour walking through the fascinating family museum that you curated. It goes back to the start of the family's history here in the 1700s, and the different generations and the contributions they made. And what I'm really struck by is how across the generations, it's been such a story of innovative entrepreneurship, really exciting, um, bold, traveling around to find new markets to, to, to share the wine that the families produced. Yes, what is uh, really impressive for me is uh, on one side, the continuity, of, of this uh, story that uh, it's uh, really uh, something that uh, hits the visitor because you have the idea of the approach to wine business and to wine family business. So the relevance of the tradition of a family inside a territory. Um, and then also the uh, capability of organization of uh, giving a structure to a small company uh, even two centuries ago or that 
you know, sometimes people don't realize that you can have a, a coverage of all the risks through insurance policies on everything, even 150 years ago. And you cannot imagine that you have a structure that covers your internal sanitation process with people uh, you know, uh, taking care of many different continents, markets, and languages. So I think it's very interesting as an experience uh, to go through this museum, not only to understand what is uh, wine business or what has been mastered in the wine business, but also to understand what was the business in the past centuries. Yeah, it, it, it is a really fascinating story. And to see this story actually documented with handwritten letters seeing the beautiful and detailed handwriting of your ancestors that tell the story through their documentation, their searching for new markets. I think what's also striking to me is uh, I, uh, we, we consider the Mastro Berardino family to have been pioneers in really bringing the wines of southern Italy to the world. Uh, and I'm, I, I thought that story began post-war with your father, who we'll be speaking about in a minute. But what's fascinating is how early the, the family was selling wines to markets uh, in the U.S., uh, but across the world a very long time ago, and, and wine in bottles. Yes. Uh, the story um, on foreign markets start, starts at the end of 1800s. They are really pioneers. And uh, I think that uh, it's correct to identify my father as uh, uh, the new wave of Maso Berardino winery, uh, but uh, in his mind and in, in his heart, there was this strong feeling of bringing back the name of the family to the success of uh, 50 or 70 years before, that he knew through the tales of his father and then that he uh, had been experiencing when he was a child in the late 20s and beginning of the 30s. Yeah, that's, that, that's, that's so interesting. And, and of course, you, you recounted in our previous interview um, the difficult time in the 1940s, the difficult time um, when the Allies had bombed the area, when men were away at war, and your father took over the company at 15 years old. Yes, uh, it was... Uh, very strong as a character, and uh, he was uh, living uh, in a very strong relationship with his father, because uh, my grandfather Michele got sick in uh, 43, then he died in 45. And so, uh, as uh, the older brother of my father, Angelo, was under the German army, my father became, first of all, the uh, leader of the family business. And uh, uh, on the other hand, he became the, uh, I mean, uh, the person who read the newspapers to my grandfather, the person who, with whom my grandfather used to play chess at the times. So this meant that uh, he got all the stories from his father and uh, he got uh, the possibility to get a, a strong experience uh, that he put in his uh, next years in which his father passed away. And uh, then he was lucky also because uh, his older brother, when, when he came back from the uh, war, said that you have to also to study. I know that uh, 
you are managing the company, but you wanted to bring him through university. So my father studied technical uh, subjects and uh, became enologist. And, uh, and then uh, he took over the technical side of the company with uh, a perfect professionalism. He, he also made some courses uh, abroad to complete his specialization. So uh, he was in charge of almost everything, uh, studies and the business in the late 40s and 50s. And uh, in the 50s, uh, he was really a leader for a company and was, was uh, recognized as uh, uh, the great innovator of uh, Italian wines, together with other four or five friends of him that were, you know, have uh, had, uh, had a similar story. Pioneers in other parts of Italy. Yeah, well, exactly. That were really taking this, um, taking Italian wine to the world and really celebrating this long tradition of Italian wine that goes back literally 2,000 years. Now, your father has been called an archaeologist to the wine because of his his dedication to these ancient grape varieties that go back to the Greeks and Romans, uh, uh, something that, of course, continues entirely here today. Now, how did your father have that passion for, for the past? You said that he studied engineering. Did he, did he do classical studies? Yes, he, he was coming from uh, the high school that were classical studies, and uh, then he went through chemical, biology, and uh, enology. And uh, um, he was uh, a lover of the old books. And uh, he used to study all these ancient books, uh, talking about uh, coming from Pliny, the Naturalis Historia, but Columella, Tito Livio, and so on. Uh, he, he used to mention parts of these books almost every day. And those were his readings every day. You, you saw in, in his room every day on, the, on, on his desk uh, some of these old uh, books. And these were really his base of uh, uh, knowledge. And so um, he, knew, he, he knew very well the roots of our viticulture that, as you mentioned, are partly from the Greeks and partly from the Romans. So we had these two main uh, um, trajectories of our uh, viticultural platform. And the Greek one, uh, Greco, Alianico, and the Latin one, mainly Fiano, but also other Greek writers, uh, are still the base of our work. Uh, at some point in the early 70s, uh, he, he wanted to start a research plan in order to bring back to life uh, the knowledge base of the Romans in uh, viticultural uh, training systems. And so uh, he started uh, working at a project that could allow him to understand more and more about these different training systems of the past. But then only in the 90s, we were able to bring something to an operative level uh, with the collaboration that started in 1996 uh, with the Italian government, with the Minister of Culture in Pompeii, where inside the archaeological site, uh, we were able to plant uh, several small vineyards, each of them dedicated to different revitals, different training systems, and uh, there were 15 small vineyards. And the project uh, um, started in 96 and lasted up to the end of 21. In this project, we were able to reproduce all the ancient techniques and reproduce also the density of plantation, the position of the plants, 
and everything that was linked to the world of viticulture in, the, in Roman times. So this has been an interesting project for us to understand more and more about uh, what was the um, original approach to viticulture, how it was uh, um, evolved and advanced in some sense, even if uh, the motivations for, for some technical choices probably were different from the ones that we got in our current literature, but the uh, options were similar at the end. So it was extremely interesting. But this is uh, something that has always uh, um, been at the top of the thoughts of my father. Uh, as he usually said, uh, we have to bring our story of our wines and our grapes back to the roots. Okay. All the projects dedicated to these grapes uh, aimed at uh, bringing back to life uh, the original flavors yes. of these wines. And so many of the research that we are currently uh, running. Just sticking with the Villa dei Mesteri project before we talk about some of the new projects. So your father also inspired in you this love of the ancient world, this love of, of classics and of this connection with the past for you personally? Yes, because uh, at the end I realized that uh, classical is something that uh, uh, generates a, a bridge, a link between the past and the future. You cannot have uh, anything classic uh, if you're not an innovator. So you have to make changes and uh, at the end uh, uh, time in wine business uh, is like a circle. You know, it's something that brings you back, you know, old things as new ones uh, time by time. And so I've seen in my, my professional career many things that uh, seem to be 20 years ago something a little older or dusty that uh, now are considered the, the frontier of research and innovation. So it's very funny. I think that uh, we must keep a, short, a strong link with our roots in order to be real innovator in our territories. Okay. Now, just a few more details about this Villa dei Misteri project. You say that you, you um, actually planted um, in the vineyards, actual vineyards that were, you were able to find traces of posts yeah. that, and able to yeah. utilize the Roman training systems. Exactly. To reposition the plants in the exact same position of uh, the 79 AD uh, eruption. And uh, this was made with the collaboration of the archaeologists. And so uh, you see that uh, those vineyards were made with a density of plantation that is about uh, 8,800 plants per hectare. That is something quite crazy. Uh, I mean, currently, after many years of experiments here in Irpinia, uh, we decided to stay on uh, 4,500 up to 5,000 plants per hectare. That is a good density, uh, considering the, the, the steep slopes that we have here on the mountains, but there it's very plain and it was uh, possible to work uh, with a little higher density that was the original ones from the Romans. And the reason for that was that they wanted to have a higher level of shades during the working in the vineyards. And so the approach is different. Today we, we talk about density of plantation because we, we want to make a, you know, a balance uh, between the biological individuals and the microenvironment. The reasons were different, but the options were similar, as I was saying before. Yeah, that's absolutely fascinating. And uh, were uh, 
you able to determine the grape varieties that have been planted through DNA? Yeah, we have plenty of uh, information on this, uh, and we made uh, a lot of studies. Uh, uh, but uh, of course, culture is a, a very strong support there because uh, from that time we have so many documents, but also we made a lot of studies on the residuals that we were able to uh, analyze uh, in the region, in the area. So you know, we got uh, plenty of information about the... And then uh, uh, Pompeii, as you know, was uh, so rich and a, a huge expression of, uh, of uh, the culture of the time that uh, you got uh, very dedicated and uh, you know, precise description of every part of social life. And wine was in, right in the middle of that process. Of course. It was a city of wine, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. They were people were drinking it, but they were trading it. Yeah, um, and the amphitheater, and you know, the position of the of the vineyards is uh, uh, another you know option that is not uh, not the case. It's something that was made for a precise reason, and you see yeah, the abundance with the wine bars on the wow. street and so on. So everything is uh, you know has a reason for being there. Yes. Well, it must have been hugely exciting to actually plant the vineyards and, and see the fruit come to fruition and, and, and make that first. What year was the first vintage? Uh, 2001 was the first. 2001. But uh, again, uh, the research plan was mainly dedicated to the training systems because, uh, of course, the microenvironment in Pompeii is a plain and no elevation is closer to the sea. You don't have the, the discussion of temperature that, we, that you need today to have a high-quality wine. So, Probably it's not a wine that you can age like a Taurasi from Irpinia, but it's very interesting as well because you are doing an experiment in a very peculiar environment with a very dark and sandy soil with the richness in minerals. But, uh, uh, but of course, it's wines from the coast and not from the mountainside. Even in classical times, the wine of Pompeii wasn't considered a great wine. It wasn't the Grand Cru of the Romans, was it? <laughs> Well, yes, probably it was more for a, a consumption in the city, in, in the way we mentioned before. So you got the production, and then you got uh, the, the wine bar that gave the wine to you know to the people going to the show at the amphitheater. Yeah. Now you were concentrating on training systems. Did you consider making the wine in Roman style? I know now no. amphora is you know it, it's become quite important in Italy, but um, that no, it doesn't make sense. I mean, uh, the technology was the same. The control of temperature mm -hmm. was there with the Dolia system in yeah. the soils, but uh, the, the process then uh, doesn't make sense. At the end, you got uh, something that is not uh, in the line of the expectation, aesthetical expectation of the consumer of today. And uh, I mean, uh, of course, you do experiments uh, on, on those processes, but at the end, you don't you don't bottle a wine like. Sure. What were the grape varieties you decided on then for for this wine? Um, first of all, we decided to focus on Piedi Rosso, mm -hmm. that uh, is uh, the grape varietal that is uh, most adaptable to that environment. Uh, Piedi Rosso doesn't love cold environment that we have in Irpinia, but uh, has a very good expression on the slopes of Mount Vesuvio, so close to Pompeii. And uh, also we used a little of uh, the Shashinoso in the blend that is another typical Roman grape. 
Uh, in the second part of the project, we planted also some Aglianico with the bush training system. But Aglianico, you know, gave us more troubles uh, because uh, Aglianico wants a colder environment. So at the end, what is really weird uh, is the fact that uh, in Pompeii, Aglianico was harvested in late September, while here in Irpinia we harvest in the beginning of November. And Piedirosso is harvested there in October, more or less, uh, you know, the same period in which we harvest in the Vesuvius slopes, that is a little higher. So it's a completely different behavior of the grape varietal of Aglianico in two different environments. This was another interesting scientific achievement that we got. You know, the influence of the microenvironment can move, you know, the, the maturation period from, from mid-November yes. back to mid-September. That is a lot. Yeah. So it was a real learning process, um, yeah. which, which has helped in, in further researches, which we'll speak a minute. Uh, but first of all, you've, you've uh, very kindly opened a bottle of Ville dei Misteri, and I'm very um, excited to try it. It's a wine I've read about, so salute. Um, it's a 2012. 2012, from grapes grown within Pompeii. I know, how many bottles would you make a year? Italian Wine Podcast. If you think you love wine as much as we do, then give us a like and a follow anywhere you get your pods. One thousand per year. Okay, so yeah, the current, uh, um, you know, the last vintage release was the thirteen. The fourteen is going to be released, and uh, then we also have uh, up to the twenty-one. That was the last harvest made in the project. Uh, up to the 21, they are still in the cellar refining. Uh -huh. Well, it is fascinating to taste. Now, when you first tasted the Villa de Mystery, your first vintages, did you really feel that you were tasting a past, that it was connecting to that time uh, nearly 2,000 years ago when life stopped on, on the streets of Pompeii? Uh, no. I think that uh, uh, we must uh, honestly make the difference between the research project dedicated to viticulture and the wine that uh, probably I wouldn't have even produced because uh, you know the focus was on viticulture but at the end uh, the, the government side said okay you will you will produce some fruit some grapes so why don't you use those grapes to produce a wine and to give this wine to the government in order to have the possibility to use it you know in uh, public uh, events and so we produced this Villa de Misteri that uh, uh, became a kind of uh, event wine and it was used uh, in Italian embassies in you know big moments of the made in Italy mm -hmm. you know um, events but um, it's it's been a good experience but at the end as you can see the wine is very pleasant as uh, the character uh, of a wine from Campania uh, it's very interesting. Uh, it's uh, round and delicate as a yeah. wine from the cross can be. Uh, so it has good fruit still. Yeah, 2012. Yeah, yeah. It, it's it's aging well. It probably will not have uh, the aging potential of a Taurasi that you know after one century is still alive and yeah. vibrant. But uh, it has a good potential of aging as yeah. well, and it's uh, it's it's a very pleasant wine. Yeah. Well, it's an absolutely fascinating project, and I know that you spent 25 years on the project, and 
have carried on research into um, wine in, in so many ways. You know, you do so many things. You know, you curate at the museum, you write novels, and you research. So this was a, an important project. I think it's an absolutely fascinating one. But tell, tell us about your research now, and in particular, the Stilema project that we have here. Oh, yes. Uh, Stilema project is the most important thing I'm working on. And uh, it was uh, started uh, as an idea in, uh, in uh, 2014, uh, right after my father passed away. And uh, um, I wanted to work on some of his ideas and uh, to um, also leave a tribute to his professional career. So stilema, the word stilema meaning the collection of styles of an artist. Uh, stilema is a collection of styles of an artist, that is the viticulture Antonio Mastro Berardini. And it's made of three wines, uh, a Fiano di Avellino di OCG, Reserva, a Greco di Tufo di OCG Reserva, and a Taurasi di OCG Reserva. And uh, each of them representing the benchmark in terms of approach to winemaking process, the benchmark uh, during the evolution of my father's career. So the whites, Fiano di Avellino and Greco di Tufo, uh, reproduce uh, the style of the whites uh, uh, aiming at a very long refining. So wines that are released uh, in the fifth year after the harvest. So it's something very unusual. But uh, the wines from Irpinia, uh, like Fiano and Greco, really can make it. And I think that they deserve it and uh, that uh, we must take the responsibility of presenting these wines to the consumers, the wine lovers, in a way that uh, can give them a full idea of the potential of these wines. So Stilema, Fiano and Greco, uh, currently we have just released the 2018. They are so fresh. The color is uh, still the same of the wine that, is, that comes from the last uh, harvest, but uh, with uh, um, a maturity and a complexity of flavors that is outstanding, with uh, a very uh, you know, an expression of salinity that comes from the process. 24 months on the lease means that you have a huge protection, but also you have the enhancement of this uh, um, soil character that is outstanding. And the Fiano goes a little more towards uh, the Fiume and uh, the Greco probably a little more towards uh, the um, hydrocarbon, I mean, the, the style of a Greco refined. Uh, different wines. Uh, Greco has more power, Fiano more finesse, but uh, those are the two wines that I really love to drink currently. And demonstrating that these two uh, great white wines do have a capacity for long aging. Yes, this was something that uh, we already used to uh, present, uh, the vertical tastings mainly on Fiano di Avellino with bottles dating back 40 years uh, uh, were already something that we used to do. But it's different now, because with Stilema, you think of these wines in that perspective. While in the past, we used to show the potential of aging of that wine, that was the current Fiano di Avellino, with a longer refining. This means that the evolution in the bottle was faster, while I'm really confident uh, looking at the first data, because Fiano is already at the fourth experience 
It started in 2015, the first harvest of Fiara di Avellino's dilemma. I see that uh, the evolution is very, very, very slow, and uh, uh, these wines are really outstanding. So I'm, I'm really uh, curious, but also very happy about this uh, experiment talking about the whites. If we move to the reds, uh, the approach is completely different. In that case, uh, Taurasi, Stilema, Preserva, the current vintage just released in 2016, uh, that wine is uh, a revolution compared to the world of Taurasi that you can experience currently on the market. Um, the, the Stilema Taurasi goes back to the styles of the Taurasis of uh, the 50s and 60s. So in that case, uh, we are um, shortening and reducing the maceration. We lower temperatures, we dress them in, and uh, with a huge freshness, much more agility, and uh, um, beautiful transparency, less concentration of the fruit, um, complexity, uh, a little more exotic uh, nose, and uh, with, uh, with uh, uh, a touch of fruit that goes more towards the small red berries than the darker ones that we find in Radici or in, or in Storia. So it's a completely different tasting profile. It's a wine that has an agility in the glass, an agility at the tasting, a drinkability. Being a big and important wine, you don't have the idea of uh, um, too much uh, earthiness, too much, uh, uh, I mean, uh, concentration on the back. This is something that I love in terms of style, elegance, and finesse. And this is exactly what my father used to do, producing the Taurasis with which, when I was a child, I first came in touch with a big red wine. One thing that is um, most striking to me uh, is that wines under the name Taurasi, Greco, as in Greco di Tufo and Fiano, were being sold by the family uh, well over 100 years ago under those names. It sounds like, to me like this dilemma, you're really going back to the roots of the family to really express the territory and those three historic grape varieties in its full uh, an expression, complex, not looking for those nuances of crew, but really embodying what those great varieties represent. Yeah, you're correct. And uh, I think that uh, I've been very lucky having a father that uh, paid a lot of attention to the family roots and allowed me to have a beautiful library of wines that are witnesses of uh, the, an evolution of uh, the way of thinking about uh, prestigious high-quality wines in Irpinia. And uh, I feel the responsibility to bring this message on, to give next generation the same opportunity that I got from my father. And so Stilema project is uh, a way to start creating something that I want to leave as a patrimony for the future to them. And uh, it's very nice because, uh, you know, sometimes you, you feel the heaviness of a process like this. In wine business, it's not. <laughs> you know, everything is so pleasant and so fascinating that at the end, even if you're, you're aware that you're doing something important, it's something that you can enjoy, uh, you know, with your family, with your friends, knowing that uh, pleasantness uh, is a good driver for research and development. Yes, I guess it, that, that, that drive to create great wine, it's also enjoyable wine. Yeah, definitely. 
Definitely. Final one I'd like to talk about uh, is Historia. You've mentioned it because that returns us to the to the ancient world, to your father's fascination with uh, the classical world. And in many ways, uh, I've always thought of uh, Historia is is that there's the greatest expression of Campania and as the wine that really links us to the Roman world. So that wine that you maybe would have liked to produce in Pompeii, but because it's a coastal vineyard, uh, the wine wasn't, wasn't yeah. that one. Historia is wine. Yeah, Historia, the, the full name is Naturalis Historia. Uh, Historia is a project uh, started in the 90s. Uh, it's the second wine project uh, that I personally took care of. Uh, the first was the More Maiorum, it was a Fiano di Avellino, that started in 95. Uh, Historia, the first harvest was in 97 and uh, started as a project of uh, vinification of grapes coming from very old vines. So the idea was to uh, experiment uh, the potential of quality of uh, vines uh, that are older. That means different density of plantation, but also different yield per plant. And so a completely different perspective. The wine came out in 97 and was uh, extremely successful at the beginning. And uh, in the first years, it was an experiment. It was classified as an Irpinia IGT. Then in 2003, became a DOCG Taurasi, uh, because in the first uh, years, uh, it was vinified in blending with a little percentage of Chiliroso in the blend. But in 2003, Chiliroso came out of the blend because the contribution was, was uh, not relevant. And so I decided to reclassify it uh, since uh, 2003 in the DOCG Tauras. And the wine is extremely interesting because uh, coming from a different site, it's a single vineyard located in the estate of Mirabella, different from the character of the Radici Taurasi Riserva, that is from Montemarano, that is the coldest part of the Appalachian area. Uh, Mirabella is a little lower in altitude, uh, maturation, uh, uh, comes a little earlier, one week earlier, but the average temperature is a little higher. So at the end, you've got a little more delicacy, talking about the Taurasi, of course, but a little more roundness compared to the Radici. And uh, the flavors, you, you have this coffee, dark chocolate, uh, uh, I mean, uh, a lot of beautiful spices. Uh, I mean, the wine has fruit and spices with a beautiful integration. So elegance, and, and uh, finesse. Um, um, it's producing very few bottles, about 3,000 uh, 3, per year. So it's, it's, it's a small production, but uh, uh, it's a very interesting example of the fact that Taurasi is not just one wine. Taurasi, as an Appalachian area, can express so many different things, and we are obliged to allow people to experience all of them. So we want to give this wide representation of the potential of a beautiful appellation like the Taurasi BCG. Okay, it's, it, it, it is a beautiful one. And of course, it's paying homage to Pliny the Elder for his great work, yeah. Naturalis Historia. Now, the funny thing I'd like us to touch on, Piero, is wine hospitality. I drove over, uh, from the coast today, over the mountains, uh, into another world. Irpinia is very different yes. from coastal Campania. It's very, very beautiful. It's a long time since I was been here. I was. It's more than 30 years. I was here in 1989, I believe. 
which was actually when the area was still recovering from a terrible earthquake of yeah. 1980. And I know so much has changed, and um, and I know that wine hospitality, you know, in 1989, people weren't really traveling to to find vines and 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 to try to find the stories of vines. But now that's a very important activity for wine lovers, and I hope that that our listeners will find their way to Atripalda. So tell us about wine hospitality. Yes, just 10 years after your first visit here. So in 1999, I decided to start a new project of wine tourism and hospitality. And so in one of our largest estates, the one that I mentioned in Mirabelle Clano, I established a wine resort where we have, it's called Radici Resort. And uh, there we established uh, two different restaurants. So one is a fine dining and the other is like more an osteria with the zuppe, with the minestra typical of uh, the region. And uh, uh, we also have, of course, uh, the hotel, the country hotel, with uh, 12 uh, suites dedicated to the, the guests. And uh, there's a spa, of course, there's a heated swimming pool, uh, trekking. I mean, it's a very, very nice way to present our territory. Um, in, in, a, in a 65 hectares of property, you really find the heart and soul of uh, Irpinia. And this is another contribution that I want to leave to my land, to my homeland, because I think that the potential of these hills uh, is huge. And uh, this wine resort uh, has been classified among the eight most important luxury resorts are dedicated to wine and food culture in Italy currently. So it's uh, for me a huge satisfaction to have had the possibility to open uh, a new chance of development uh, for for Italy. Yes, and I think that's important for the area as well because I think people that love wine, you know, we love being in wine country. It's nice to be where vines are, where wine is produced, and then to also have other activities uh, that one can come and really, really hang out and live in an area is, is a great opportunity. So I hope that uh, our listeners will find the wonderful Mastro Berardino range of wines wherever you are in the world, and even more, I hope that some uh, will make their way to Campania and to, to Irpinia, to you discover them here at the source. Here it's been a real great pleasure meeting you here, returning to your entrepot after such a long time, and to uh, sharing this story of the Master Bernardino family. Grazie mille. My great pleasure. Thank you, Mark. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of Wine, Food and Travel with me, Mark Millen, on Italian Wine Podcast. Please remember to like, share and subscribe right here or wherever you get your pods. Likewise, you can visit us at italianwinepodcast.com. Until next time, chin chin.